All right. We started last week in talking about the book of Titus. Titus is a uh, letter by Paul to an individual. He is uh, a young man, it seems like, because of what he says there in chapter 2 and verse 7. And saying uh, in a commandment to the young men, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, he says, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded and all things showing yourself to be a uh, pattern of good works, showing doctrine and doctrine, showing integrity, uh, reverence and incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Using the second person plural there, or the second person pronoun rather singular, and saying, Titus, you're a young man. This is behavior proper for young men, so that those who may be standing against you may not necessarily have anything evil to say of you. Uh, he is, it seems like, a minister there in Crete. Uh, letter is brief. Focus on the responsibility of that minister to make sure that the work of the Lord is going forward in terms of leadership, in terms of upholding truth, Christians behaving honorably and behaving obediently. If we were going to sum up a statement that was going to um, give us a good idea of what Titus was like, and these are uh, things we discussed last week, um, is a focus on God's grace it's, as seen in the Savior's message for us to be wise about things like faith and works. All throughout the book of Titus, Paul is going to refer, uh, continue to come back to this theme of good works. He begins uh, actually in chapter 1 and verse 1 in talking about godliness. You've got this um, uh, Paul talking about um, receiving from Jesus Christ this faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of truth which accords with godliness. Well, how do we show that truth has made a difference in our lives? By what? By the way we live, by showing ourselves to have been affected by that truth, by letting that be displayed in our lives and in our characters and our actions. But note down in chapter um, 1 and verse 16, Chapter 1 of verse 16, again, looking at the theme of good works as he's uh, talking about the grace that's made a difference in our lives. We're putting our faith into action. And talking about those Cretans there from verse 12, one of them uh, of their own, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He concludes this discussion in verse 16 saying, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. As he gives instructions, which we'll talk about um, in chapter 2, uh, one of the verses we just read, verse 7, and talking about the responsibility of young men, he says, in all things, chapter 2 and verse 7, showing yourself to be a pattern of what? Good works. Look down at verse 14. Talking about Jesus Christ and the redemption that he brought, the grace that he, he is to us. He says, who gave himself for us, verse 14, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself, uh, purify for himself his own special people, zealous for what? Good works. Chapter 3 and verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for what? Every good work. As he goes back and talks about, again, the, the obedience of the gospel, he says, verse four, when uh, chapter 3 and verse 4, when the kindness and love of our Savior towards men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, 
In talking about salvation, he says it's not based upon our moral inherent goodness that Jesus Christ came and died for us and that we received the redemption of the body we received, sorry, the, uh, the grace that God, uh, God brought, but it was according to his own mercy he saved us. So what do we need to do? Verse 18, this is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly. Those who have believed in God should be careful to what? Right there, verse 18, I'm sorry. Be careful to maintain good works. Very good. Last way, lastly, chapter 3 and verse 14. Let our people also be known to what? All right, devote themselves to doing what's good. Uh, Morris says, New King James says, let our people also learn to maintain good works all the way through this epistle here is the grace of God here is what God wants us to do here's what uh, God has given us through his son Jesus Christ now you Cretans stop behaving like Cretans you people who have come out of the world and you're no longer in uh, your in the world but you're not of the world as Jesus would say in the book of John now that you've come out of this world, the difference is, is that you are a person who has been redeemed by Christ and your life ought to show that grace through good works. Does that make sense? That's the message. And so the key verse of the book, verse uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, as we uh, pinpointed last week, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. And it's bookended by verse 15 of chapter 2. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. Speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. What does grace look like whenever it's uh, translated into good works? All right, that's where we are and that's where we're going to begin here in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 1 was about a Titus appointing what in, elders, in every city? Elders, for what purpose? To guide the church specifically. Because it was lacking, all right, to supply what's lacking, chapter 1 and verse 5, but for what purpose? To stop the mouths of those who were, well, behaving as Cretans. Those people that were um, speaking things that they ought not. Verse 10 and 11, chapter 1. There are many insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. When you have people that come into a congregation or are trying to instruct a congregation and they're filling their message with things that are not about the grace of God, not about what Jesus Christ wants us to do and how he wants us to live, if they're saying, especially in this situation, they're coming in and they're teaching things that they ought not, they're bringing in maybe um, you need Jesus Christ but holding on to elements of the old law in order, for, uh, in order to be righteous before God, Paul says to Titus, these people, their mouths must be stopped. And one of the chief obligations of these elders is to stop the mouths of those who are saying such things and not to be carried away with those things. As he looks at verse 15 of chapter 1, 
to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being an abominable and dis, uh, disobedient and disqualified for every good work. Contrast that now with what he's going to say there in chapter 2. But, here's the contrast. As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? What does it mean to be sound? I, Andy Baker, being of sound mind and body. Okay, we uh, use it often in terms of truth. Good, what else? The word sound is just simply healthy. Something that's healthy. When we use the term, uh, Andy Baker being of sound mind and body, it means that I'm in my right mind, I'm in good health, I'm not doing this under compulsion, and so when you're writing a will, you want to, <laughs> a statement like that to say, you don't have to question my moral or uh, my, my uh, mental sanity, okay, about me writing about those things. When Paul talks about, especially sound doctrine, he's talking about that which is healthy for a church. If there is sound doctrine, is there also unsound doctrine? Is there something that's absolutely detrimental and unholy and something that's um, going to cause the demise of a local congregation? Nod your head. Where have I seen that? Again, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. When you have somebody that's in there and they're teaching things that they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain, you're talking about a congregation that's ripe not only for the devil but also for um, somebody to come in and take advantage and to lead them entirely off track. Paul says, you speak what's necessary for healthy teaching. Okay? What does that consist of? What does that consist of? Chapter 2, chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, that the old women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. When you look at what is necessary for sound doctrine, how would you sum up chapter 2 and what it is that he says here in chapter 2? If 
How would you sum up exactly what he says about sound doctrine here in chapter 2? All right, that it's profitable, that it's what? Support. Important. Okay, important for who? Profitable for who? Us. <laughs> Me, you, the congregation. What elements of the congregation does he touch upon? It's everybody, isn't it? Yes, sir, George. A solid foundation. Here is healthy doctrine. Here is a solid foundation from which you can grow. Don't behave like those Cretans who were always lazy and evil beasts and gluttons. Don't behave like it was that those other people were. But here's what's a good foundation. Here's what's profitable. Here's what's important to a local church. That let's start off with the older men. How are they to behave? Not like Cretans. What does he say about the old men, the older men? Be sober. All right? Uh, have a mental faculty about themselves that's going to um, behave rightly, being temperate and uh, reverent and sound in faith and love and patience. I never thought about this, but how many of these qualifications here of an older man or a foundation are foundational to what he says about elders back up in chapter 1? Isn't it true that we all ought to be striving for those things that are, well, important and profitable and uh, that... Uh, that can show us to be sound in faith, healthy in faith. And you look at the qualifications, here are the things that he tells these older men about what they're supposed to do and be, and there's a number of them that are repeated back up in the elder qualifications. That is that if you're not striving to be an elder, or if it is that you're not qualified to be an elder, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't, with whatever else you have, strive for those qualities and those characteristics. All right? He mentions uh, older men, verses 1 and 2. Here's the older women. Likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, and that they, who's the they? The older women. The older women admonish the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Okay. Personal illustration had a young lady that was in the youth group uh, back where I was a youth minister, and she was not wearing clothes that were modest. And I had a, in, in worship service, and I had an older woman come up to me afterwards, and she said, Andy, you need to visit with that young lady and tell her that what she's wearing is not right. And I said, that might not necessarily be the most effective. She said, why not? You're the youth minister. I said, well, to be honest, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't use a term like youth minister, but at the same time, the Bible does tell that there's somebody specific that's designed and maybe geared towards helping somebody to understand what's modest and what's not modest, about what's good behavior and what's not good behavior. If I understand Titus chapter 2, you're the one that noticed it. You're the one that has a problem with it. And you, in love, need to go and tell this young lady the truth and help her understand more. I mean, there's wisdom to what God says. There's healthiness to what God says in thinking about the fact that you got a young man coming or a, a, a gentleman coming and telling this girl that what she's wearing is immodest. Is that That's not necessarily going to have the same effect as if a lady goes, an older lady goes and tells that younger lady, listen, 
you need to you need to uh, get a skirt that's longer or get a shirt that's you know higher cut or whatever the whatever the case may be. There's a instruction that goes on that may not necessarily be effective or as effective, or it may cause altogether an entirely different set of problems. Uh, if you have a young man uh, saying something to a young woman like that, um, so verse three is about the older women and their behavior. Verse four and five is about the younger women, about how they love their husbands and uh, love their children and all of that. Now you have verses six through eight examples to younger men. Younger men, how is it that they're supposed to behave? What's sound for them? What's healthy for them? Titus, be a pattern of good works. A pattern of good works. Do we expect, expect enough of our children sometimes? Uh, sometimes it is that in certain places we can get the idea that, well, even though they're Christians, they're still the church of tomorrow. Even though we have people that have obeyed the gospel, well, don't, uh, the church of tomorrow looks very, very bright. And I appreciate that sentiment because when we're talking about elders and deacons and the future stock and crop of, of those Bible class teachers and others that we look at when we look at these two or three rows of young people that we have here, there is a sense in which they are going to be the leaders of tomorrow, but there's a very real sense in which they have expectations and behaviors that are expected of them today. When Paul is talking to these people, he doesn't draw age boundaries. He doesn't say younger men qualifies from uh, 18 all the way through 35. He talks about it in terms of these are men who are part of the church and have responsibilities based upon what Christ has done for us. And so when you talk about young people being a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and corruptibility, sound, there's our word again. What does sound mean? Healthy. Healthy speech that cannot be condemned as that one who is being opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. That's a responsibility for young men. These are responsibilities for younger women. These are responsibilities for older women. The responsibilities for older men. There is a place in all of this for you and me to fit in and having responsibilities of what a healthy church based upon healthy doctrine looks like. But note just a couple of things before we leave this passage. You have the Cretans, verse 12. One of them... Uh, chapter 1, verse 12, sorry. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he says their testimony is true. They're speaking exactly what's right. If somebody were to look at the church and say that church is just filled with lazy gluttons and evil beasts and, and liars, well, if we're based upon something that's not the doctrine of Christ, that's not healthy teaching, is that true? Could that possibly be true? The answer is yes. But when he gets to chapter 2 and starts talking about these things specifically, about the responsibilities of older men and younger men and older women and younger women, in saying that you've got a testimony that's altogether separate from chapter 1 and verse 12, the testimony about these Cretans, note that he says a couple of times, chapter Two and verse five about the younger women, they are discreet and chaste and homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, 
for what purpose or what end, what result is going to happen? That the word of God is not spoken against. Somebody can't look at a church and individuals that are based in following healthy doctrine and say something against them that the word of God is not powerful to make a change in their life. Is that true or false? Somebody looking at the people that are part of the Graver Road Church of Christ here in America 2020, and they say, oh, that church is just filled with liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Can they say that based upon the change that the Word of God has made in your life and my life? The answer is no. The Word of God is powerful, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. The Word of God, well... Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation, chapter 1, verse 16 of Romans. In looking at the power of God to change lives, somebody can look at us and say, you're not like you used to be. There's a change or a dynamic contrast to what you used to be as a Cretan, what you used to be as just a Texan or just a heathen, I don't know. There's a change that's been brought about based upon the Word of God. Somebody can't legitimately look at the Word of God based upon how these young women are behaving and say there's something, well, there's nothing to that Word of God because all that changes is outward. She's not really, she's just offering lip service based upon, you know, uh, the way she behaves towards her family. He says this is so the Word of God may not be blasphemed. But know what he says down in verse 8, speaking to the young men. Young men, you be sound in speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. When you've got people that are just looking for an excuse to cut you down or to look down on you, Paul would talk to Timothy about that quite a bit, saying, let nobody despise your youth, but be an example of the believer. Uh, chapter uh, 1 Timothy 1, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 4 uh, Verses 12 and following, I think. Um, as he's talking about this and saying, there may be people that stand against you and say, that church is worthless. That young man, let me tell you, he is just no good. He is just, um, he's just a no good scoundrel. Well, if Titus is behaving the way he ought to as a young man, does somebody like that have a legitimate grounding for saying those things? The answer is no. In Crete, in a place as godless as Crete, in a place as godless as Rosenberg, Texas, in looking at our lives and our position from day to day, Paul says these are the character qualities that are going to make a difference to separate you as a person from somebody that, well, the people that you meet in the grocery store every day, the people that don't know God and haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the people that are willfully rebellion. Uh, in, living in rebellion and anti uh, what uh, what Christ died for, um, you know, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. What's going to set us apart? Being a pattern of sound words, being a uh, speaking and and exhorting the things that are uh, profitable for sound doctrine. Um, verse nine and ten. Exhort bond servants. We talked about these uh, several weeks ago when we looked at uh, an overview of Philemon about how um, you're talking about slaves within the Roman Empire. We could probably substitute the word employees. Employees. 
Exhort employees to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all, all things, not answering back, not pilfering, not stealing, not uh, trying to sneak some things under the table, but showing good, all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. How is a person who is under the authority of somebody else supposed to act? In an employee-employer relationship, in a situation like that, what does he say? Okay, be honest, be respectable, or be res respectful towards that person in the place where he is put as far as the job goes. That only include if your boss is good? That only include if your boss doesn't put on you unnecessary expectations or uh, is, uh, doesn't ride your case all the time? Does that, does that uh, respect only extend un until he starts mistreating you? Is that the way it works? No? When do we do that? We do that all the time, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. What is the doctrine of God our Savior in all things? What have we spoken about it? What word characterizes it, chapter 2 and verse 1? Adorn. I'm putting on something. I put on some clothes this morning. When you're putting on something, you're putting it on so that it can be seen that it's made a difference in your life. He's adorned what's healthy, what's going to make him an employee or a slave or whatever the situation is where he's going to be a model employee, a model slave, a model example of how it is that God wants us to live and to be, even whenever it is that we may not necessarily agree with uh, what's going on. Questions or comments about that? Sure. Alan brings up the fact that uh, in the first century, you've got slavery as a common institution. And you think about, well, I can't imagine being owned by another person. But then when you've got somebody looking at you constantly like you're just property and looking at you like you don't have the same value as I do, and you're looking at somebody like that all the time, and that person feeling like that all the time, it may lend itself towards uh, slaves wanting to be disobedient and wanting to talk back and wanting to kind of sneak an extra biscuit whenever it was that you could or, or an extra morsel of food or whatever it is. But as Alan mentioned, these slaves in the first century had a tremendous opportunity to shine the light so that it was that they could show themselves to be transformed by the doctrine of God. How they put that on and how they let that change them from the inside out. Can you imagine a master seeing a change, a dramatic change between that 
rebellious loudmouth slave, and now it is that he's answering yes, sir, no, sir, and he's doing what it was that he commanded him to do quickly and with the right attitude. You'd, you'd think something was up. <laughs> and really, it is. It's transformed him from the inside out. And that's what the doctrine of God is designed to do. Healthy churches begin with a healthy respect for God's word. Um, the effort that it sometimes takes is more than the price sometimes that we're willing to pay. But as Paul talks about these things in uh, context, I have to ask myself why at the end of talking about older men and older women and younger men or younger women and younger men and then slaves, does he end with verses 11 through 15? Why is that here where it is? We may mention before that the Holy Spirit, when he inspired these men to write these things, didn't put together random thoughts. And he didn't just grab something and say, okay, now I want to talk about this. Now I want to talk about this. Now There's a logical flow and progression of how it is that the Holy Spirit reveals things. And what it is for us as Bible students is that we ought to take a look and say, why is this the case that he's just talked about adorning the doctrine of God, verse 10, and now he transitions into uh, verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, four, what does a four do? It does what? Refers back to the previous statements, but what does it, what is it going forward and doing? It's doing an explanation, okay? Um, I'm going to take a nap this afternoon for I'm very tired. It's been a long weekend. Okay. Here's an explanation about why it is that I've just made this, uh, this, this declaration. Here's Titus, your responsibility to speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. Chapter two and verse one, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, slaves, bond servants Four. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Who does that include in context? Everybody. The older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, slaves. Is there anybody left out? It's appeared unto all men, teaching us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. What defines in our context worldly lust, uh, unrighteous living, ungodliness? Well, I'm thinking immediately back to chapter 1 and verse 12. One of them, their own prophet, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. What do we do when we become Christians? We deny those things. We've left those things behind. The Greeks, whenever they wanted to emphasize things, they had a variety of means to do it. When I want to emphasize something in a lesson or in an article or in uh, a post, what I can do is I can hit Control B and I can make that statement bold. Or you have some people that like to write in all caps. I don't much care to do that because it feels like I'm yelling at somebody. Or you know, put 15 exclamation points after something in order to say, get this. What the Greeks would do sometimes is that they would put the order of words in a sentence and they would change that around to emphasize the, uh, the important words. If you look back at verse 12, or verse 11 rather, the verb in that sentence, 
the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. That is actually the first word in that sentence. You can tell it's a verb by the ending and by how it's used in the sentence. So here's the message of what he's trying to get across in emphasizing this. The word is epiphany. We get our word, English word, epiphany, appearance, light bulb moment. And what Paul is saying is, it's appeared. It's actually appeared, the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. Has appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Verse 12, the teaching and the denying are both participles. What does that mean? They hinge on that verb that we just talked about. I'm just going back to English just a little bit. This afternoon, when I drive home, I will be steering and shifting. I'm going to drive. There's my verb. Steering and shifting tells how I do that. I'm driving by steering and shifting. Those are participles. What Paul is saying, what's appeared, what has actually appeared, the grace of God. This tells me my responsibilities and how it is that I live the grace of God in my life by teaching and denying. The Holy Spirit wants us to realize that the grace of God brings salvation has appeared and it teaches us. How has it appeared? Well, it's appeared through Jesus Christ and his message. Jesus said, if uh, somebody rejects me, receives not my words, he has that which judges, uh, judges him, the same that... Uh, the same word that I've spoken will be this judge in his last day, uh, John 12, 48 through 50. Um, and so it teaches us about denying ungodliness and worldly lust and how we should live today. Yes, Ken. The grace of God is available to all men, and it teaches us who are in Christ. It teaches all men, really. Uh, it teaches all men that denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, we leave those things behind, and we live in a certain manner of speaking today, soberly, righteously, godly. What does that look like? Well, look back up at the context, chapter 2 and verse 2 all the way through verse 10. Here's what it looks like for older men. Here's what it looks like for older women. Here's what it looks like for younger men. Here's what it looks like for younger women. Here's what it looks like for slaves. So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's past. Past. We don't live ungodly lives anymore. And if we do, there's something badly wrong. There's something that the grace of God has not been able to affect. There's something that we've taken in that's unhealthy. That if I'm continually turning to those old sins again and again and again, and I'm living like one of the Cretans here in understanding that I'm lying on a regular basis, I'm, I'm uh, being a lazy glutton or I'm being an evil beast or whatever those characteristics are, that's unhealthy, that's ungodly. The grace of God that brings salvation says, stop it. Stop it denying, I'm turning away from those things, ungodly lust, uh, un, excuse me, ungodliness and worldly lust, 
But what does he say at the end of verse 12? We should live past, present, or future. It's present. Here's my response now. I'm turned away from that. I'm living now soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, just in case you doubted that it was present. Here is the conduct of my life now. As an older man, as an older woman, as a younger man, as a younger woman, as a slave, here is my conduct now. I'm living this way. But verse 13 is another participle, looking. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that past, present, or future? That's future. You've got a past that I've denied, ungodliness, worldly lust. I'm not living there anymore. How I'm living presently, soberly, righteously, and godly shows the grace of God's made a change in my life. But also, I'm looking future tense for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are you looking forward to more than anything else? What are you looking forward to that's really going to make a change in your life and that's really going to, well, be the, the beginning of what it is that we're working for? The return of Christ. Who gave himself for us, verse 14, that he might redeem, redeem, a word we use a lot in the church and we uh, sometimes forget to define what does it mean to redeem something to buy back to possess okay there is a transaction that's taken place um, it has the idea to do with ransom ransom here's somebody who's going to release somebody else on the receipt of a ransom Death has a hold on us. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 Death has a hold on us. But the grace of God that brings salvation has redeemed us. What does that mean? It means there was a price paid, wasn't there? And God, who uh, bought us back, paid the price for his wrath. That has to be satisfied through his, the blood of his son, Jesus. So it is that we could be released from the hold that sin and death had on us. Why? So we could live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us, liberate us from every lawless deed and to cleanse for himself his own special people, zealous for good work. I don't know if you get those things that come across your uh, newsfeed on social media, but I'm fascinated by the ones where somebody will take like an old handgun that's got rust all over it, and uh, what they'll do is they'll take it and they'll, uh, you know, they'll drop it down into a, a bath where it is that they can eat the rust off, and then they'll start polishing and polishing and polishing and then redo the grip and all of those different things until you take what's was nasty and what was probably sitting at the bottom of you know a lake somewhere, and he will pick it up and he will clean it up and to the point where he makes it useful again. And I get this picture here in reading chapter 2 and verse 14. That here's God looking at this old, nasty person living in a filthy lifestyle of sin. And saying, I want that one. And buying us back, redeeming us from every lawless deed, and then 
cleansing us, purifying us, changing us from the inside out, and revamping every old worn out part, cleansing for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. God doesn't clean us up to put us on a shelf somewhere. God doesn't clean us up to have us hold down a pew. God cleans us up so that we can be people that look at God and see the greatness of the grace of God that brings salvation that has actually appeared to all of us and puts in us or causes us to think about him with a zealous, a burning desire for good works. A burning desire for good works. Does that sound like you and me? That's not like us in the way that it is we behave from day to day as older men or older women or younger women or younger men or employees. The grace of God makes a dramatic change in our lives. That's his point. So that we're not living the same way as these Cretans are here from chapter 1 whose mouths must be stopped. The, the ones who may actually be in the church and are leading people astray and teaching unhealthy things. Paul says you teach healthy things. These are the things that are healthy because this is what the grace of God demands in your life and my life. Last sentence, verse 15, we're all done. Three imperatives for the preacher. Three imperatives, and I mark the imperatives to say you've got to do this, and I mark it with an exclamation point after the word. Speak, number one. Speak is an imperative. Speak these things. What things? The sound doctrine, that's exactly right. Speak these things. Exhort. What does it mean to exhort? All right. Uh, has an element of speaking for the, the sake of somebody making a change in their life, right? Building them up. But more than anything, it's kind of a warning. Exhortation. Um, exhort. I want to speak this and I want to tell you solemnly how important this thing is. Exhort, number two. Imperative number one, speak these things. Sound doctrine. Exhort, tell these people exactly what it is that God wants them to be. As older men, older women, younger women, younger men, employees, slaves. And rebuke, there's the third imperative. As a preacher of the gospel, Paul says, Titus, these are your responsibilities. Speak what's necessary for sound doctrine. Exhort these people to behave and get this kind of character, but also rebuke. What does that have to do with? Correction. You're traveling this way. Stop it. Turn around. Come back the other way. With all authority. With all authority. Let no one, sorry, this is the last imperative, despise you. That's an imperative as well. Let no one despise. Altogether one word. Let no one despise you. Why might somebody despise a Titus for saying some of these things? <laughs> Steps on their toes or cuts them to the heart. Um, that young man, Titus, he doesn't know. Uh, I'm not going to listen to him just because he, he hadn't been around the block like I have. Don't let somebody despise you for your youth in 1 Timothy chapter 4. You... Do the work of an evangelist. You do the work that's proper for sound doctrine. You speak those things that are necessary. 
and we'll conclude the, uh, uh, the book next, next week. Thank you all so much for your attention and for your participation, and we'll begin our worship here in just a little bit. Thank you.